This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi everyone and thank you for tuning in to episode 66 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host Scott Feinberg and on this episode we are coming to you from the iconic Empire Hotel on New York's Upper West Side with a very special guest. Over the last 20 seasons, Joe Mantello has directed some 30 Broadway plays and musicals, most famously the international sensation Wicked, but also many others that have received Tony nominations in major categories. Four shows that he directed, Wicked, Blackbird, The Humans, and An Act of God, are currently running on The Great White Way at the same time, something that only Susan Stroman and Casey Nicola have also been able to claim in the 21st century. And heading into Sunday's Tony Awards, this two-time winner for directing, who over the course of his career has accumulated seven nominations, including two for acting in Angels in America, Millennium Approaches, and The Normal Heart, is the favorite to take home the best director of a play Tony for The Humans. Over the course of our conversation, the 53-year-old talks about why, after Angels in America, he moved away from acting and towards directing, why he returned to acting on Broadway in the 2011 production of The Normal Heart, and why he'll soon be doing so again opposite Sally Field in a revival of The Glass Menagerie, what it's like working with legendary producer Scott Rudin, his collaborator on Blackbird and The Humans, how it feels to see two of his shows playing on a single Broadway street, and much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. All right, Joel, thank you so much for coming in and doing this. And uh, to begin with, we always ask our guests, just for the record, where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? First of all, it's nice to be here. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, I was born in Rockford, Illinois, uh, and um, my parents both, well, my father initially was a barber and my mother was a beautician. And then over the course of my childhood, my father put himself through college and became an accountant. Wow, good for him. Now, I've read that you were into community theater as a kid, but that you had a certain sense of embarrassment about it. Why was that? Initially, I was slightly embarrassed because it just wasn't something that boys, young men in my town were interested in. And we certainly were, I mean, my parents were very uh, encouraging of it and I think I even took acting classes at a local theater. Um, I don't know. I think maybe it was this kind of convergence of this blossoming interest in the theater and maybe sort of understanding that I was gay and mm-hmm. and conflating the two, which mm-hmm. are, has nothing to do with one another. Mm-hmm. But we had a lot of theater in our town, and so it was like it was nearly impossible to, to avoid it. And once I kind of got on the, the, the conveyor belt of doing shows, it, it just never stopped. So eventually you go off to North Carolina School of the Arts? Well, first of all, I went to high school yes. with Bob Greenblatt. Really? Oh yeah, who now runs NBC. Right. And he was, um, he was our, um, he was like the stage manager in our, for our high school productions. And he, you know, he has the same kind of brain that he still has to this day. Yeah. He would, he would, he, it was very, very important to him that our shows be of the 
highest quality possible. Right. And so we would really try to, under Bob's guidance, make them as close to the original Broadway shows as we right. could. Right. And so a lot of what I learned about the theater was from Bob. Uh, I also went to school, high school with Marin Maisie, wow. who's currently sure. in King and I. And any, it was uh, a talented a of, community. It was, it was a nice group of people. That we're, on, we're all still friends. Right. But when you were at college, is it true that you sort of started to bristle at the way that they they wanted actors to basically conform to a certain way of doing things, a less individualistic way of approaching things? I think that came later, though that was really the focus of the training, is that we were being trained for a kind of a regional theater movement, which I think at that time was really on its way out. I like the training there very much. It was an excellent school. But it didn't, I didn't feel fully prepared to come to New York and encounter New York and being a New York actor on, on those terms. Was there something of a turning point there when at one point you kind of had it and, and took off and then decided to come back? I've heard bits of pieces of a funny story. Yeah, I think the first or second semester of my sophomore year, I quit school on a whim. And I was involved with someone at the time and he had moved to um, St. John, Virgin Islands. And so I packed up all my bags, I bought a one-way ticket, and I jumped on a flight. And I didn't know where, I knew he was living in a tent on the beach, and so I had to <laughs> find him. And this miraculous thing happened, which was that I got in a, a cab, mm -hmm. but it was like a golf cart. Mm -hmm. And I said, will you take, I knew he lived near a campground, and so I said, will you take me to the campground? And the man said, there were, there's five of them. And so I'd been traveling, I was about to cry, and I said, just take me to one. And it was about five o'clock in the afternoon, and I had no, I'd made no provisions to stay anywhere, n nor did I have the money to stay anywhere. Mm -hmm. And took me to the first campground, and there, sitting, reading a book, was my boyfriend at the time. <laughs> That's unbelievable. And he looked up, and the, the kind of the, the miraculous thing which I found out later was that he lived nowhere near that campground, that he just happened to be walking by on the beach on his day off because there was no way to get in touch with right, him. Right, right, right. <laughs> and uh, I was down there for about a week of just kind of bliss and then all of a sudden it hit me like oh this this isn't this isn't right. And I went back to school and sort of took myself seriously from that moment on. And I think I'd been kind of coasting and it really was the dividing line in my life. Finally in 1984 you do make that big move to New York. How did it go at first? It was not good. It was <laughs> it was not good, you know. And uh, I'm actually sort of glad it it it, it took a while. Um, it took me about six or seven years before I got my first job, as I remember. But in the meantime, I started a theater company with a friend of mine who was a playwright, who's now a novelist slash screenwriter slash director, Peter Hedges. Mm -hmm. And um, we had a company together. Uh, Mary Louise Parker was somebody that we went to school with, and she was in the company. And Peter would write these plays for us, and we they were kind of self-produced, self-directed, and and uh, it really was it was this kind of romantic time in New York when you when you could still afford to rent a space, you know, in a in a fairly nice neighborhood for a couple weekends. wasn't cost wasn't prohibitive and. Uh, and that sustained me until I became, until I joined Circle Rep. And how did that come about? We were just talking about Circle Rep recently when we had Jeff Daniels Jeff, on. Yeah, yeah. And he says it, it shaped his whole life thereafter. And so for you, how did you come to be a part of it? And what was the time there like? 
Well, it was a really, uh, it was a really an amazing place because it was full of, it's like the, it's called the Island of Misfit Toys. <laughs> there were these really wonderful, eccentric, supremely talented, soulful people. And they, you know, they sort of came together around the plays of Lanford Wilson, uh, but did produce many other playwrights. And I, I auditioned, there was a second company called The Lab, and um, I auditioned uh, for a play there. I was not cast, but they asked me to join The Lab. Mm -hmm. And I acted, I acted with the company for a few years, and then one t the, at one point I decided that I would, wanted to try my hand at directing. I tried directing one of Peter's plays. They moved it to the main stage the following season, and then I was sort of launched, and yeah. they kept... They kept encouraging me to do it. What was going on? What basically happened in, in, in the early 90s that brought Angels in America to your attention? And was it clear immediately that this was a, a major opportunity? It was not only a major opportunity, it was an opportunity <laughs> at a time where there, there weren't a right, lot of opportunities. Right. Um, I mean, the short version of the story is that the role of Lewis that I eventually played, uh -huh. um, uh, the, 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 whatever actor was playing it in 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 the, in the developmental productions was always replaced, and the, the they had just done a production and a friend of mine played the part and was told that he would not be continuing, and like he was a total mensch, and suggested me, and and uh, around that exact time that he, that Michael was suggesting me uh, Tony came to see me in a play at Circle Rep so there's this again this convergence yeah, yeah. of, of uh, uh, these events and I I just worked harder on that audition than I'd ever worked and uh, uh, yeah it was a, it was a kind of like this is it now as somebody who had at or at least early in your life felt a little um, sounds like perhaps inhibited about being gay you were saying as a kid uh was it a was it a major release in a sense to be able to play an openly gay person i think by that time i mean you know i don't know if you've ever been to a drama school but it's sort of <laughs> you, you get comfortable very quickly <laughs> like i went from right. being straight to being bisexual to being gay in about you know a week <laughs> And uh, so I was totally, <laughs> right. and I was, you were you know, comfortable, I was, I was right. comfortable with it. But. but what's interesting to me is that even during this run with Angels in America, which I think was between New York and L.A., something like a year and a half. I think so, yeah. You were already dabbling simultaneously, I don't know where you even had the time, in directing. So what was the draw for you when you were as hot as you could be as an actor to move away from that and then to actually basically formally move away from it once Angels in America was done? Well, I i mean, I really went from being pretty uh, unemployable to being in this, the you know, the event, the theatrical event of the last 25 years. Right. So it wasn't as if there was a steady climb that I was actually walking away from. It was kind of like zero to 100. Mm -hmm. And I had just started directing again at Circle Rep, but pretty small, pretty, you know, small productions. And it just, there was a natural kind of evolution. So it wasn't like I sat down one day and, and made the decision that I was no longer going to act. You know, after you have an experience like Angels in America and you play that kind of part 
something that has that kind of uh, scope to it, you know, I had the feeling that a lot of things were going to pale in comparison. Yeah. And so I just, I, I started to feel gradually, like, you know, and slowly that, that what I was meant to do or what I felt more comfortable doing was directing. So the, your first two shows as a director on Broadway are kind of a portrait of opposites, right? I mean, yeah. the first thing was What's Wrong With This Picture, 1994, closed in just 10 days. Yeah. Must have been very heartbreaking in a sense. And then you follow that with Love, Valor, Compassion, 1995, which was really acclaimed and brought you a Best Director of a Play Tony nomination. Yes. What, did the, what did that teach you to have those two things come right after each other or right next to each other? I mean, at the time, it was both humiliating and thrilling. Mm -hmm. And like you said, it's, you know, it really is the kind of a bookend of someone, the, the bookends of someone's career. And to have them simultaneously in one season, it taught me the lay of the land and that both are survivable, both have their merits and demerits, and that you can actually learn a little bit from each, you know. Right. I mean, I remember when What's Wrong With This Picture closed and, you know, it, it joined the infamous uh, the poster joined the infamous wall of flops at Joe Allen's that I was, I was, I was, I was pretty humiliated by it. I didn't go in for a while. And now when I see it, it is, it's really like a badge of honor. <laughs> it really is. I, right. I look on it in, in some way with this kind of profound pride, you know, because it was a, it was a step and it was an, it was an important step and it taught me something, you know, and yeah, I like that it's there. Interesting. Well, yeah. I wonder if I can just ask you about the a few just things about your directing philosophy before we talk about some of the other shows. Um, maybe you can clarify for, for me and for others what the job of a Broadway director actually entirely entails. I mean, I think what I mean is when does it start, when does it end, and what are the primary responsibilities? I think, you know, I look at something like Wicked, which you obviously – we're with at the birth, and now here we are all these years later, it's still going. Are you still involved with that? With something like The Humans, are you involved in the casting? You know, basically just when does it begin, when does it end, and what do you see as the biggest tasks? I mean, those two examples, they're, they're two very different things. I mean, at this point with Wicked, 13 years in, I become more like a godfather. You know, there's an incredible team of people led by my associate, Lisa Leguio, and they're really, at this point, responsible for the day-to-day -day running and maintaining the quality of the show. And they are invaluable. They are the unsung heroes of the show, and we couldn't do it without them. And so I, my responsibility at this point is casting of all of the principals. And, uh, you know, I go and see each company a few times a year. I'm called more for inspiration now, and we sort of talk about the the origins of the of the production and how we made it and what inspired us and what we were going after. So that's that. With a new play, which is different than a revival, the director and the playwright in tandem are responsible for making all of the casting choices. Um, and then with the creative team, with the design team, I, you know, have a lot of developmental time where we talk about the play, we read the play, we work in a model, for set, we work in a model form, sit down with the costume designer. And so that can take anywhere, it can be a few months, it can be, you know, usually on a musical it's 
most likely a year mm -hmm. that you start working on on uh, designs, and it's a different kind of thing. I mean, I I don't know. I think I'm the kind. Of, there are lots of different kinds of directors, and my first charge that I give myself as a director is to try to understand the writer's intention. And I feel like I don't think I have a, a very identifiable hand. No, because you work across the genres, across, you know, revivals and new shows. I mean, it, that's so versatile. For me, it's fun to be, to try to be a sort of a chameleon and to take on uh, and try on these different, it, it really, it, for me, it, it originates with the, with the playwright and what their intention is. What do you look for when you're deciding whether to get involved in the first place? Is there something that all of the shows that you have decided to do have in common? I mean, I think it's changed over the years. I began primarily developing lots of new plays, and I did that for, I want to say, about 10 years. And I, I mean, that I almost exclusively did mm -hmm. new plays. And then I decided that I was kind of ready for a new challenge, and, and, and I naively thought, well, I'll just I'll do a musical. <laughs> and kind of learned on the job. Right. And so now, at this point in my life, I look to, I really look to see who else is gonna be in the room. And am I going to learn something? Am I going to do something new? Am I gonna challenge myself? Am I going to, you know, I, I don't do things just to do them anymore. Does your background in acting, do you think, make you a a better director of actors? Does it make a, a difference in the way you interact with actors? Some would say yes and some would say <laughs> no. Um, I, I mean, like, I think it's like any tool that you have, it, it can be useful depending on how you wield it. I mean, it certainly has helped me in the past and it's also, I think I have an innate understanding of what an actor is going through and so sometimes that will make me patient and sometimes it'll make me impatient, impatient right? yeah <laughs> i have read that on any joe mantello directed production there's something called a wall of shame what is that and what is its function that isn't true anymore <laughs> and it was anymore. no and i and i don't think i i think i think I, uh, uh, the uh, the someone who was writing a story called it the wall of shame okay yeah and i don't see it as a bad thing yeah no no it, yeah, it wasn't yeah, a bad yeah, thing yeah. but but i think i took a lot of flack for it but i'll tell you what the intention was at the time and it was it was it was sort of an icebreaker um, for all of us. And usually, when you when you're working on a musical or a show with a very very large cast, there's a there's a period of adjustment where everyone gets to know one another. And I like my rehearsals, uh, whenever possible, to be about play, to be about the best idea wins. And and one thing that I I find that most people who work in the theater have in common is. You know, usually we started a little community theater, and so my uh, my request of everyone at the time was to bring in a picture of yourself when you were happy, when you were starting out. Could be anything; it doesn't have to be embarrassing. And we would put them all up on the wall, and it helped people. It broke the ice. It got people to know one another, talk about things, laugh, and it was it was really. It was like it was a way of just kind of speeding up the getting to know you process yeah. and also having a good time and saying like, like, this is a very serious job. 
but we don't have to take ourselves seriously every single second. And you felt that was more applicable, more necessary on a musical than a play? It was just because there's so many people. And right. so you walk in on that first day and there's 33 <laughs> other people sitting around that you may or may not know. Right. Or some people know each other and some people don't. And it was just a way on a break to kind of, you know, wander up to the wall and talk and, you know, and it's, I don't do it anymore. And, and I think... I, I don't know. I think when when someone called it a wall of shame, I took a I took flat for it, and like I was trying to purposefully humiliate people, right. like like some Svengali who was like you know had ulterior motives in mind, no, and it was it actually the complete like opposite. No. So ever since Angels in America and then Love, Valor, Compassion, you've chosen quite a few projects as both an actor and a director that deal with gay themes or issues or stories. Take Me Out, for which you won the first of your two Tonys for directing in 2003, The Pride, an off-Broadway production, The Normal Heart, of course, when you came back. Do you feel a responsibility as a gay man who's in a position to bring these stories to life to, to tell them? I mean, no more so than I feel. I don't feel it's a mission. Mm-hmm. I do feel it's, an, it's, it's important to tell the stories as honestly and as truthfully as I can from my point of view based on my experience. Um, I, think, I think I've been attracted to those kinds of stories because they've been personal to me. But I also directed the vagina monologues, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so where does right, that fit right. in? Right, that's uh, great. Well, back to what you were saying a moment ago about that decision, I guess around 2003 to tackle a musical for the first time, and actually basically two back-to-back with, with Wicked and Assassins, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which I believe played overlappingly, but I think Assassins was originally to be first, right? Yes. Yeah. And that was just, it was at 9-11, it felt inappropriate to do it so soon after 9-11? Yeah, uh, on, on, on that terrible day, we were scheduled to have our final callbacks for the show. Um, and, you know, when we regrouped a few days later, mm-hmm. um, it was, the decision was made for many, many different reasons. Um, I don't think any of us had it in us at that point. Although there was some discussion that it was the ideal time to do it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think that, that, that John and Steve had opened the original production during the first Gulf War. And so there was this kind of... We should just say for listeners, Steve is Stephen Sondheim. Steve Sondheim. John, yeah, so John so, Weidman. I'm right. so sorry. No, yeah. no, but I mean, uh, not everybody can call him <laughs> Steve. Name right? drop. <laughs> uh, no, uh, so they. Uh, so I think that they weren't keen on on right. on, on being misunderstood again. Right. And you know, there were whole sections. There were two monologues that the character of Sam Bick had about flying a plane into the White House, and there's a was a kind of a a. a dark, sarcastic humor that was, you know, woven into the tapestry of those speeches, those monologues. And I just didn't think that, you know, five weeks or six weeks after this event that people would be willing to laugh. And I wasn't willing to, and, and, and nor do I think any of us were willing to, we'd work too hard on it. Now, that being said, when, when Todd Hames at the Roundabout said that we were postponing, I never for a second thought, that that production would see the light of day. Really? And in fact, he did about a year, year and a half later, say, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's yeah. do it. Yeah. And in the meantime, for a first foray into the musical genre, uh, Wicked was 
not a didn't look like there was a horrible learning curve for you there because this was obviously such a, a well-received show and it hits at this point i think grossed more than three billion dollars around the world uh which is why i was kind of amazed to read that the making of it you said was actually one of the more unpleasant experiences that you've had at least in terms of collaborating with i guess writers primarily you know it was a complicated thing at the time because I had never done anything on that scale and so things that I look at now as being very much a part of the fabric of making a musical of that size right. struck me as um, I think it struck me in a, as in a, in a more intense way than I think they would right now and I was also a younger man who was who was trying to establish himself, uh, and, and, and so there was some pushback from that. But, you know, I think that those kinds of collaborations can be fruitful. And in fact, in this case, they really were. And, and, and I appreciate, I appreciate the, the, the kind of strife of it now in a way that I just, I wasn't able to at the time. And... Uh, now it seems to me a quite a normal part of the process. <laughs> and did you, know? you ever imagine, setting aside even the whatever issues there may have been at the time, I mean, just on the page, just, just as an idea, did you ever imagine it could be as big a hit as it's turned out to be? No, I don't think, and I think anybody who says that they did was, is lying to you. <laughs> and it's not about, I just didn't, I think, because I think that the reason it's turned into this kind of juggernaut is that something about the material met up with the time that it was playing and 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 all sorts of components that we you couldn't really plan and i don't think any of us anticipated the nerve that it would strike uh in in um young people um particularly young women and it's 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 been this remarkable gift to all of us, and we we work really diligently to keep up the quality of it sure. to this day. So back to Assassins for a second. Sondheim, I I've read told you that he said it's the only perfect thing I've ever written. That is has got to be daunting to hear when it's now placed into your trust. Obviously, it turned out very well. You, again, you you win your second Tony for the direction of it, but in terms of the production itself and just the challenges that came with it what what stands out in your mind when you look back on that one well for something born out of such a a a, 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 a the terrible subject matter and uh such a such a um tra tragic launch it was actually one of the most extraordinary loving fun experiences i've ever had and and it's really the only I think it's the only production that I've ever directed that I felt oh, that what I saw in my head ended up on that stage exactly. in, in almost every yeah. way. Um, and so it's very special to me because of that. And, and also to be, to work with John Weidman and Steve Sondheim and, and for have, and for, to, for them to entrust me with this material and to bring some somewhat radical ideas to to what they had done, and certainly different than the original production, that was that was a remarkable experience. You've talked about how in the few years after that back-to-back -back of Wicked and Assassins, there were some disappointments for you personally in terms of what the shows that you did. Some of them commercially just didn't 
work out as well as as you'd hoped. I think you've said that Dolly Parton's nine to five was one of the most pleasant experiences that you'd had. But then when it didn't really take off, that was very difficult. So it happens for you a lot less than most people, but it does, I guess, happen occasionally like that where a show is not what you hoped it would be. And I just wonder, are you able to shield your own feelings about a project from the way it's received by others or does that still hurt? Yeah, I think any any time that you invest as much of your heart and your brain and your soul and your talent into something and it and it doesn't take off for whatever reason, it 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 does hurt. What I've learned to do is to really identify for myself going into a project what it is that I'm hoping to get out of it. It doesn't diminish the hurt and doesn't lessen the hurt it doesn't take the hurt away but what it does do is is set a very clear goal for myself and at the end of the time that we spend together I can say I achieved it I didn't achieve it I achieved something I didn't know so to not kind of surrender the final verdict to you know someone with a pen (laughs) sitting there on one night I I learned along the way that that way that was just going to be madness why in 2011, after all these years of, of having stepped away from acting, did you decide or agree to return to, to acting on a, in a Broadway production of The Normal Heart, which had first been performed off-Broadway in 1985? Was there something about that particular production or the people that were doing it? What was it that lured you back to the other side of the equation? I, I mean, I, did, I actually did see the original production. I you went did. by myself one night and saw it down at the public. And it, it really shook me. And I remember walking around the East Village afterwards, kind of not knowing what to do with myself. And it, it, uh, shortly thereafter, I started working for Gay Men's Health Crisis as a buddy. And um, that lasted for a couple of years, and I kind of burnt out. That's like where you, you bring the meals into the hospital rooms and things like yeah, that. It was, it yeah, it was anything from um, what there would be. There would, you, would be, you were organized by neighborhoods. And so you would meet once a month uh, at someone's apartment. And there would usually be you know, 10 to 15 other people there, buddies there. You would, be, you would sort of update everybody on what was going on with the people or person or people that you were working with. And if that person no longer needed the services or sadly passed away you were given another case and and it but it could be anything it could be i mean i bought groceries for people i would just go and hang out with them for a few hours i the last person that really uh that i couldn't quite shake i i spent some time with him in the hospital around the same time where they weren't um uh, bringing food, they weren't required to bring food into the rooms, oh. and uh, and after he died, I, I it was just I, I that was I, that was all I, I was done. So anyway, the play was was this seminal event in my life, um, and 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 even as a young man, there was something about that character that I wanted to play, and it was the only regret that I had when I. Stopped acting was that I never got to play it, and just very simply, um, I, I I ran into Joel Gray at a in the theater, and I said, "Well, what are you doing?" And he said, "I'm directing a a, a one night benefit reading of Normal Heart," and I said, "Oh, that's the only part I've ever wanted to play," and he said, "Well, come do it," and uh, um, so basically that went from that to then 
there being interest in movies. So it was this kind of, it was, and then when we were going to do it on Broadway, it was going to be, we were sort of going to replicate that it was a reading with scripts in hands and then that went away. And so it was, <laughs> it became I got bigger, bamboozled in it. And then you were back a few years later on TV as well. So that you really were <laughs> yeah. sucked back. Um, but I, I read that it was sort of for you also a, a tribute to a friend of yours with whom you had read the play years earlier, but who was no longer around to see the revival or the Broadway arrival. Can you share what that was? Yeah, it was uh, one of my one of my roommates when I first moved to the city. And he well, he was actually my freshman roommate at drama school and my best friend. And we moved to the city together. And and uh, uh, after I saw the normal heart at the public theater, the original production, you know, and this is probably where I, I should have realized that the, the, the seeds of the, the director were taking root. I, I organized a reading in our living room for friends, and I cast everyone and, of course, gave myself the main <laughs> part. And, um, and uh, he played the role of Felix. And so... This is Ned's lover. Lover, my lover, yeah. Uh, although he was my best friend. And, right. And... Uh, and uh, and so he was with me. I did it for him, and I did it because of him, and I did it because he would have wanted me to. Because he died in 2009? Yeah. 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 Well, that's, that's a lovely tribute. Yeah. So 2016, flash-forwarding here a little bit, and not to overlook things like Casa Valentino, which I, is one of my all-time favorites. Oh, and good, some me of these too. Others. Yeah, yeah. But uh, 2016, this is pretty incredible. Something very few people have ever done, and I think only two other people in this century. Four shows simultaneously on Broadway. Yeah. Wicked, obviously, continuing. Blackbird, The Humans, and Act of God just now coming in. I guess I've got to ask you, do you find that you're sleeping a lot less recently, or is it just that they all... You're used to it at this point. You've built up the stamina for this. I'm used to it. I mean, again, there's this convergence of them all playing for two weeks right, at right, the same time. Right. But, you know, obviously Wicked has been running for a while. And, you know, I, I, I'm incredibly proud and, and flabbergasted that, that that I've joined the ranks of people who've had four shows on Broadway. But I'm sort of proud of the fact that they're all so really, they're just really different. Yeah. You know, and I, I'm as proud of that as just the sheer, you know, just the number. Yeah. yeah. Well, Blackbird is an interesting case because, and I think a unique case, because I don't believe there's another example where you've gone back and revisited your work as director. Obviously, with Normal Heart, you've gone and done it on TV after dinner or whatever. But as a director, that's not happened. And I wonder why, in this case a show that you had done in 2007 with Jeff Daniels, with the same scenic designer, Scott Pask. Why revisit it now on Broadway? It's the only time in my life that I've, I've, I've felt that I left something unfinished. And I don't know how to describe it other than it just kept coming up in the back of my brain over the years. And uh, usually when I'm done with something, I am done with it. And, and it's even hard to kind of go back and remount it. It's just not my favorite thing. To, I like the, I like the excavation process. Mm-hmm. Um, but this one, I it's the play is so rich, it's so dense, it's so complicated and there are so many ways to navigate your way through it that it it just was calling to me to do it again and and you know and, and then when you have a a bold producer like Scott Rudin who had seen the original production 
and was open to the idea of exploring it again. I mean, just that's amazing. Had it come close to going to Broadway before? It had, and maybe that was part of it. That that it it, it had had this run, this a nice run at Manhattan Theater Club, uh, stage one, and it was it it almost moved, and at the last minute it fell apart. And so maybe that was that that was a part of it that it sort of seemed like it was unfinished business. Yeah, unfinished yeah, business. Yeah. Yeah. I guess as a as a case study, what's it like when you keep a number of the key elements the same, you, Jeff, Scott, but then change up this one key ingredient in a, in a two-hander, obviously a key ingredient, where in this case, Allison Pill, who had done it on, who had done it off Broadway, is now succeeded by Michelle Williams. How much does that one change shake up everything else? Drastically, really. I mean, really drastically. I mean, let alone the fact that it had been seven or eight years since we did it. So it certainly wasn't. It wasn't the. It wasn't crystal clear in my mind or Jeff's mind what we had done. I mean, we never once said to each other, "Wait, what did we do at back at Manhattan Theater Club?" We all sort of made a pact, and I made a, a, a pact with Michelle when she signed on that she was not going to have to give someone else's performance or, you know, that we were going to be starting at square one, which, which we really did. And, and my hat is off to, it, it's slightly easier for me because I'm, you know, there, but Jeff had the experience of doing a long run with another wonderful actress quite successfully. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but he's, he's a really, you know, a bold, fearless actor. And he was like, if we're going to do this, let's do it. Let's go back to the beginning. Right. What else is there? And in the intervening years, he and I had changed. We have different interests. We, there are different things about the play came into focus for us at a time, you know, now than they didn't. And, and also both actresses are so wonderful, but they have a, just a very, very different take on it. And so the interpretation has to, when you have only two people on stage, it has to reflect that. Sure. So it was thrilling. It was amazing. So just to note, Blackbird's nominated for Best Revival of a Play at the Tony's. Nominated for Best Play at the Tonys is this first play to make it to Broadway by Stephen Carum, who I wonder how he first crossed your radar and why you think you connected with this story. I first saw one of Stephen's plays at the roundabout at Lorpel's where we started The Humans. I saw his play Sons of the Prophet. And it's so funny, I just found an email the other day that I sent to a friend of mine who runs a theater in Allentown, Pennsylvania. And I said, hey, I just saw this great play by this young writer. I think you'd really like it. And it said in Pennsylvania, come into town and see it. And so I was really aware of him. I was so impressed by by his writing and uh, was eager to see what he did next. And uh, one day, a couple summers ago, I got an email from him. And the subject line was my new play, The Humans. And he said, you know, please read this and I'd like to invite you on board. And I read it and said anytime, anywhere. It's an amazing ensemble that you're directing on in this one. And I believe that some of them were brought into the conversation by Stephen, but some of these people are folks that you have very, very long and rich histories with. Can you, I mean, I was amazed to learn about how far you go back with Jane (laughs) Howdyshell, especially. So can you just tell us about how these six people came together for you? Well, Stephen had really written the, the roles of the, the daughters uh, with uh, Sarah Steele and Cassie Beck in mind, and I had seen both of them on stage before, so 
I was overjoyed because I could see both of them in the roles. Um, Reed, I had just worked with on Casa Valentina, and it was a very, very different way to go with the role. If you, if you just read the play and the description of that character, you wouldn't necessarily think of him, but I was so impressed with what he did in Casa Valentina, and he's the consummate actor, so that was easy. And then Jane and I, Jane and I go way back. We worked at a summer stock theater called the Timberlake Playhouse. <laughs> Uh, in, uh, in Mount Carroll, Illinois, a little tiny theater. Uh, spent a, a, a blissful summer there. He, you know, he lived in cabins. And Jane was the leading lady of the company. And she was great. And I saw her do musicals. I saw her do comedies. I saw her do... You know, she did, she did such a wide variety of things and was extraordinary in each and every one of them. And uh, she was really nice to me. And I was an <laughs> apprentice. And she was a good singer. And she was a good singer, and she was a good everything. Yeah, and but she was a good per- she was a good person, you know. And it's such a lesson. She's like, you don't know where we don't know where life is going to take you. It would have been. I mean, I literally was. I don't even know if I got paid. You know, I maybe paid them that summer. Mm-hmm. And she was just. She was so kind. So here we are. She's she's a Tony nominee in yeah. one of your shows. It's great. Yeah, directing a show on a two story set. Is great for the it's great for the audience to have so much to look at and contemplate. But for you, it must have presented a, a unique kind of challenge or an unusual challenge. I'm trying to think if others of yours that I've seen have had multi, multiple stories or anything like that. But I'm just curious how you handled it here, where it's got to involve a lot of choreography, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the one great thing is that the roundabout theater um, constructed that set for us, so. From day one, or day three, because we sat around the table for a few days, <laughs> we were on that set. And we, Stephen and I both felt that that was important because everything, almost like a farce, had to be so precisely timed. But it needed to unfold quite naturally. But in fact, everything is, you know, you notice when somebody leaves... By the time they walk up the staircase, they have to be able to so, to... so for the actress to figure out the precision of that timing and then to forget about it and just let it happen, that took a while. But we were, you know, I mean, that, that, is an, that was an incredibly useful and uh, extraordinary gesture on their part. To ha- I mean, I'm, I think I've only rehearsed on the set one other time in my life. Wow. Yeah. Audiences yearn to understand the meaning, quote-unquote, of, of shows, especially shows like The Human, where... It seems like there are some metaphysical elements some people read into or uh, just haunting things like the, well, characters certainly haunted by these flashing lights and the noises and so on. And so from what I've read, even early early on in the development of the show, there were things that might have been even creepier, like having a, a face pop up in a window or things like that. I guess I just wonder... Can you shed any light on the on the debate that all of us come out of that show having about what it actually is all about? I, I mean, I don't want to answer for Stephen, but I, but I my guess is that he would say it's about what you think it's about. Like we were very rigorous, I you know, about making sure that everything that happened in the play is something that could be explained. Even the door closing at the end. I don't know if you've ever put a chair underneath the door, but sometimes the pull of the of the door will, will move it. So he very 
he had an experience doing the play in Chicago where where he learned something about it, which was that it actually didn't need to go very far. If, you know, and what we strived for was to create from the very first moment, the rhythm of that first moment where that man stands there for almost, you know, 45 seconds and there's nothing and then this sound comes in. So right then you're engaging in a kind of, you're engaging in, 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 a, in, a, in a dialogue with the audience about how to watch the play and what the surprises of the play might be. And he he's very skillfully laid in these kind of, uh, well, like when I came into the room today and there was there was noise above us. You know, right. If, and if that kept happening and then if lights kept going, it would, it would, we would start to feel like, that's really strange. <laughs> right. Um, and so, you know, ultimately, what does it mean? I, I think that's I think that's one of the great things about the theater is that that's what you know you you leave the theater and you go and you talk about it, mm-hmm. and everyone's right. It really is. There, I mean, I, I don't know of a good play that you can say it means one thing. Right. right. Last two things. First of all, on both the humans and Blackbird, your lead producer is Scott Rudin, whose legend precedes him and. He, he will be the first, I think, to admit that there's great things that people say about him and there's things that people say that he would rather they not. I guess for you, as somebody who's worked with him quite a bit, how would you describe him and the experience of working with him? Uh, I think he, the word I would use to describe him is uncompromising, and that's, that's an A-plus in my book. I want to work with that kind of person. I want to work with that person who gets up early, who thinks about the show, who thinks about how to make the show better, isn't afraid to spend a little money to make it better, mm-hmm. who is only concerned, his, his primary concern is the quality of the show, and asks everyone around him to meet his standards. I think that's great. Otherwise, why the hell are we there? It's right. too hard. Right. <laughs> it's too hard. And he's, he's unlike anyone I've ever worked with before. You know, he came to see The Humans a week before we opened Off-Broadway, Sent me a nice email after he saw it. I woke up the next morning. He'd 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 written me at five thirty in the morning, and he said, "I can't stop thinking about it. What a play! Call me when you get up." And so around noon, <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> you know, I, uh, I called him, and he said, "He just more people have to see this, and if I can strike a deal, I want to do it." And within forty eight hours, we sort of began this process. And I remember going to a meeting in his office, and and. You know, there were there were other people present, and and I and I said to him, but this is all predicated on the fact that it gets good reviews in the next several days, correct? And he said, no, it's gonna it'll it, it's gonna do fine. Right. It's gonna be fine. And he has the courage of his convictions, yeah. and he asks a lot, but I don't know. Maybe I, I think I'm cut from the same cloth, and I think there are people who like that about me, and there are people who don't like that about me, and that's okay. Sure, you know, I've made peace with it. <laughs> Last question is just, as we mentioned, four shows that you directed are currently running on Broadway, two on the same street, I think. The Tonys are coming up on Sunday. You're nominated for the seventh time. And it was just announced that you'll be returning to Broadway as an actor in The Glass Menagerie opposite Sally Field. Do you ever have a moment to sort of stop and appreciate how amazing it is that so many of these things are going on in your life? I do. I do. I, I am from Rockford, Illinois, and I, you know, I, I, there was one day when I was walking down 44th Street between the two theaters, and I really just stopped and took it in. And, and uh, you know, when the whole idea of doing The Glass Menagerie came up, 
I didn't know if I, I thought like, I don't know, I'm not sure. I, 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 I'm really interested in the idea of working with Sam Gold, but it's a long commitment. Do I really want to do it? And then, and then one day this, I had this moment of clarity that I thought like, if someone had told you in 1984 when you arrived in this city that you were being offered to star in The Glass Menagerie <laughs> with Sally Field, right. it would be unimaginable <laughs> that you would take even a second before you said yes. And so in some way, it's like honoring that person who came here and saying like, all right, this one's for you. Because it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's remarkable, and I'm incredibly fortunate. Well, thank you so much for thank joining you. me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing. The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.